Hebrews 12.29. Is that better? All right. We got one more verse in Hebrews 12. Uh, do you think we'll get through today? <laughs> well, we got high hopes. It's a short verse. It says in Hebrews 12.29, For our God is a consuming fire. Now, we should read the verse before it that we talked about last week. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The term, sir, I don't know that I talked about that, that word for service there last week. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to sneak back there one more time. In case I didn't, I think that that's an important word. Important word. It, it's, uh, it's an unusual word, and it has to do with service as a priest. Okay? Serving like a priest in a temple. And so, it's, so this is another passage about the priesthood of every believer. So in the Old Testament, only the Levites, and then according to the designations under Moses, exactly how they served and when and so on was all spelled out very carefully. But the New Testament teaches the priesthood of every believer. And so when it says that we may offer to God an acceptable service, it would give the image of being doing temple ministry as a priest. And every believer can do this. And I was going to quote our um, Lane here. Oh, he says that that comes, by the way, from Psalm 95.9 in the Septuagint. Psalm 95.9 in the Septuagint, which would be a different psalm in the... I think it's 96 in ours. Okay. The writer transposes the summons to worship in Psalm 95.9 Septuagint into his own distinctive idiom when he uses the verb latruane, latruane, to worship, to serve. The verb has cultic... Now let me say again, because some of you weren't here. When... Now it's too much? Alright. Alright, we'll find the perfect uh, amount of amplification here yet. Okay. Um, when the term cultic is used in technical theology, it doesn't have a negative connotation. It means, in that context, it means any group with a prescribed set of religious procedures. And so it can apply to Israel or anybody else, but cultic means within their own group and their own procedures. Where we use the cult, the term cult just for false teachers, yes. Even in French, a church service is called a cult. So it's called a cult. So we go to, we're going to a, a church service, that's just the name for it. Cult. Okay, in, it's French, interesting. Um, so, the reason I say that is that when you, if you start reading theology, you'll run across the word and it'll say, well, wait a second. The Old Testament saints weren't in a cult, were they? Well, they were in a, they were in the sense of the one that God ordained, which is a group with their own prescribed practices. The verb has cultic associations that are enriched by its prior use in the homily in reference to the sacrificial arrangement under the Old Covenant, which was inadequate to remove the impediments to worship. It was also used in 9.14 of Christians. They are now capable of worship and service of God because their consciences have been purged of defilement. Every impediment to worship has been removed by the sacrificial action of Christ in offering himself to God as an unblemished sacrifice. 
A fully adequate basis for the response of grateful worship has therefore been provided. So all of the things that would have kept us from coming to God, from serving God as a priest, from worshiping God, have been removed by Christ. And so now we have the priesthood of every believer. And we can, uh, with cleansed consciences, according to Hebrews 9, come to God and serve Him with reverence and awe. And then it says, for our God is a consuming fire. So the, the miracle of atonement is that sinners could come into a presence of a God who's consuming fire and offer acceptable worship. I mean, uh, in our flippant and uh, irreverent society that we live in, people don't get how important that is because we tend to think that God's really not all that holy, or at least that's the way the society around us looks. And thus they come to the conclusion that they could have any beliefs that they would like to have and that they could come to God on any means that they would like to come. And they may just make up their own religion and they're assuming that God will be pleased with any religion anybody might come up with. Isn't that the common belief in our society? And then if you say anything different, they think that you're, what what are you saying? You're saying only your your religion is right? How can you say that? Well, we're not saying that we're right because we have a religion. We're saying that God Himself has spoken and has revealed the terms by which we acceptably come to God. And if God has spoken, then certainly it would make sense if there is a God, He would have the right to tell people how to serve Him. Yes? Really what we're claiming is that we have a historical basis to believe in a certain way because God became man. He came down as a man, gave us his words, said, I'm really God, even though you see me as a man. When you kill me, I will raise from the dead the third day and prove to you that what I said is true. And that happened in cold, sober history. Mm-hmm. We believe the words of that man. And there's people that saw him ascend into heaven, that's where he is, until he comes back again. It's not something that's mystical or weird. We just believe in historical facts. Exactly. And um, the the New Testament uh, discounts as myths as being even, as they are called useless. In other words, in, in the epistles, Paul uses the term muthos in the Greek, which is our word, where we get our word myth. He says, we don't follow myths. Myths aren't worthy to be believed. We don't just have a clever religious story that seems good to us, but we have a, a Savior who has spoken, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, very important verses, by the way, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. He has spoken, so therefore we know the terms by which we may offer acceptable service. La true ain to serve as a priest in the Old Testament, but now all of the redeemed are summoned to God to serve in priestly worship. And then it says, for our God is a consuming fire. And that actually adds more uh, wonder and uh, praise to the whole thing. That um, normally, if you would think of God as a consuming fire, you would try to stay as far away as you can, Right? Who's going to walk into a consuming fire? But Keith mentioned last week we were talking about this. It's like the Hebrew Hebrews that were thrown into the fiery furnace and there was one in there with them like the Son of Man. Okay, and so if we're in Christ, we can go into the fire and we'll be preserved. And so 
the consuming fire came from the Old Testament idea where they saw the mountain quake and the fire and they couldn't go, they couldn't touch the mountain and they were afraid and they were told that they couldn't touch the mountain so only Moses could go up and talk to God and then he became the mediator of the Old Covenant. It's, it's, um, Brian, could you look up uh, Hebrews 9.14 just for our remembrance? It's in the same book. Yes, that's in Hebrews. Yeah, it's in the same book, Brian. For surely shall, shall the blood of Christ, who by the virtue of the eternal spirit is, has offered uh, himself an unblemished sacrifice to God, purify our consciences from dead works and lifeless observances to serve the living God. You get the Amplified? Yeah, I okay. was trying to skip through some. <laughs> yeah, they, they have a lot of synonyms. Okay, where it says that the, the, the blood of Christ will cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That's the same Greek word as used in verse Hebrews 12.28, to serve as a priest. So the cleansing, uh, see, for the priests in the Old Testament to serve, they had a ritual cleansing that they had to go through before they could serve. And what it's saying in Hebrews 9 is that the cleansing that makes us uh, holy so that we can serve was the blood of Jesus cleansing us from the inside. Instead of just external cleansing like they did at the labor of washing, God has cleansed us from the inside out. The blood actually um, cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve as a priest, the living God, who is a consuming fire. Yes. In these verses uh, 29, or 28 and 29 would tell us that if we try to come to God, the consuming fire, by any other way other than Christ, you will be consumed. Yes. That, yeah, let's just talk about the alternative. If, if, we, if the blood of Jesus cleanses us, cleanses our conscience for dead works, we're able to serve. If that's not true, and we think we're going to go serve God and come to Him... We'll find him to be a consuming fire in the bad sense of it will be destroyed. And we were mentioning uh, a couple weeks ago that when Brian Flynn and I went and did that conference, he was quoting these New Agers that say all paths lead to God. Right? And that's what that's New Agers all say that. And we and we and then we concluded, yeah, they all do lead to God, but they either lead to God in salvation or they lead to God in judgment. Right? And so you better know which one leads to God in salvation. I think that- Second Thessalonians 1 is a really good concept of the kingdom of God coming. And we pray for the kingdom of God to come, but it's really a threat. If it comes, those who are against it will be, it's bad. And you mentioned yeah, the, there'll be enemies. Yeah, when the kingdom comes, the enemies are destroyed. What it says, it goes, this is, uh, for it's only just for God to repay you with affliction, those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, as to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed at the second coming from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So it's talking about him coming in fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Right. But he's coming in fire. Yes. I'm going to preach on that this morning as a matter of fact. Okay? <laughs> so um, I'm preaching on the day of the Lord. Previews and reviews. That's true. The day of the Lord, there, one of my points I'm going to bring out in the sermon from 1 Thessalonians 5 is that the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. 
And there's warnings in the Bible to be prepared for that, both for Christians who Christ may come and find us asleep, and that would be bad. And those who have not been redeemed need to be warned that the day of the Lord is coming and they better be right with God because then the enemies are destroyed. Now, sometimes um, in, in the history, in the history uh, of the Old Testament, they had false assurance. Okay? And false assurance is a huge problem today, in my opinion, um, because of the fact that so many uh, of our Christian leaders in the evangelical movement are no longer warning people about imminent judgment. And they don't even talk about the idea of judgment or atonement or the blood. Okay, so people, when they're now warned, they tend to be lulled into false assurance to think everything's okay when it really isn't. Now, this was true in the Old Testament. So you'll, you'll get a little more out of the sermon because I'll give you a preview, okay? Amos, Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom and at a time when the northern kingdom, after the split into Judah in the south and then the ten tribes in the north, and they had two different kings, and the northern kingdom was very idolatrous because they had two false houses of worship, one in Dan and one in Samaria. Samaria? I think so. And they actually had Baal in their house of worship. And they set up this these places because they didn't want people to go back down to Jerusalem, which is what God told them they had to do, because they were afraid there would be a reunited kingdom. They didn't want it. They wanted to have their northern kingdom. Now, for a short time, the northern kingdom was very prosperous. They had the best agricultural land. They had the best natural resources. And at one part of history, Assyria was preoccupied with a war with somebody else to the north. Egypt was preoccupied with some other problems, and they didn't have time to afflict Israel. Right? And so they, so because they were in a war, which was a rarity in the Old Testament history, and because they had all these natural resources, what happened was they became very, very prosperous. Well, when they became prosperous and wealthy, they began to believe that God didn't care about the idolatry. So they had Baal right in their house of worship. They had, so, so they were very open-minded. They were the first, uh, <laughs> New Agers. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they were emergent church, yeah. <laughs> Whatever icon you like, if you came in, there's Baal over here, Yahweh over here, and you, you, you can, whatever you like, you can do. And, and so, <laughs> so they thought that, they thought that because they were doing this idolatry and they were prosperous, they got the idea that God didn't care about their idolatry. Why would you think something's wrong when you're wealthy and prosperous? And so Amos was a prophet that God sent to them. He actually grew up in the southern kingdom in Judah. See, I can do this now because I can't tell you all this during my sermon. So the people in Sunday school are going to really know about Amos. And so he grew up in Judah, but God called him. He was a farmer, and God said, no, you're going to be a prophet, and sent him to the northern kingdom to prophesy to them. And Amos was prophesying to them that their wealth was deluding them, and that much of it was ill-gotten because they were oppressing widows. And there were a lot of widows in the northern kingdom because of a previous war had killed a lot of the men. Um, and that they were taking land that wasn't theirs. And then the culmination, it's a very powerful uh, prophet, 
uh, Amos. At the end, he says, and you say the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. In other words, you're saying we want the day of the Lord to come because we know when he comes, he's going to destroy his enemies and that'll be even better for us. And Amos says, what you don't know is you are his enemies. You got a false assurance. The day of the Lord is going to be a day of terror. It's the worst thing you could be asking for. If you really want the day of the Lord, you you know you should repent and get right with Him, so that you don't have enemy status with God. All right. Now, the delusion that's coming upon even the evangelical movement is that judgment is nothing to be concerned about. And we got an interesting email exchange went on. Um, a guy named Josh, who's a, a, a phone and email friend of mine who was one of the first people to contact me several years ago when his church went purpose-driven. And he's been fighting the seeker movement out in, out in Pennsylvania, where he's from. And he does whatever he can to try to alert people to the danger. So he ended up uh, getting into a dialogue with one of the pastors at Willow Creek. And the way he started the dialogue was he emailed uh, Willow Creek and, and said... I have a question. Is Christ the only way to God? That's the question he asked. Well, this guy who's, what was it, Keith, did you say, remember he's pastor of spiritual something. Yeah, pastor of spiritual direction or something like that. Emails him back and wasn't quite so sure about that. Okay, I mean, he had kind of a wishy-washy answer. So then um, Josh said, well, would you read a book if I sent it to you? And because this guy was at least nice enough to dialogue with him. Yeah, pastor of spiritual growth. So Josh said, well, will you read a book? And the pastor said, sure, I'll read it. Whatever, what book do you want me to read? So he sent him my book on uh, redefining Christianity. And so we're kind of looking forward to that because I've been wanting to hear a pastor who disagrees with me what, what they're going to say. So the guy read the book and then emailed back Josh saying he didn't want to talk about it. So then Josh was not very happy about that and kind of kept poking at him a little bit and sent him some more emails. And finally he got some response back and it was interesting what he said. Uh, it sounded a lot like the emerging church. You saw it, right, Keith? It sounded like the emerging church. He says, well, the trouble with Dwayne is he's stuck in this rational Western propositional. propositional. Yeah, propositional. And remember the debate with Doug Paget? It was that same stuff. I'm a binary reductionist, yeah. And, and so that's what Doug Badger said. Well, what they mean by pro, what's a proposition? A proposition is a statement that can be shown to be either true or false. And they don't like propositions. They just want an experience that can't be true or false. It just is, alright? So a proposition would be something like this. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's a proposition. Now either he was raised from the dead or he was not. And if he was, our belief is true. And if he's not, according to Paul, we are of all men most miserable. And that, that's why they, we look on it as a historical event. That it, Jesus was raised not because we feel he was raised, but because you feel he wasn't raised, in which case it would be our own truth. But we believe he was raised because there's an empty tomb and people saw him raised. Right. It's a historical fact that we believe. That's propositional. He's trying to remove the historical yeah. fact and make it an internal Right, and so what they do by removing the propositionals make everything subjective. Whatever you feel is your religion. But then the other thing he said is that the problem with this Dewey is he, and I'm going to quote him. He says he's just trying to get people's butts into heaven. Unquote. Shame on you. 
<laughs> so, what an interesting response. And I, now, what a, and, well, yeah, and, 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 then, and then what I should be doing, okay, and he was defending the peace plan as he says, what he should be doing is trying to make the world a better place for people to live in. Now, uh, dear ones, I, uh, let me tell you what that is. Theological liberalism. That's exactly what liberalism looks like. That's what I was raised in in the Methodist church. We were a liberal church, and we didn't know that God would send anybody to hell. In fact, they denied that he would. The good Lord wouldn't send anybody to hell because he's a good God. But we are going to be good people and good neighbors and good Samaritans, and we're going to make the world a better place to live in. That's liberalism. Okay, now, but the thing that's uh, fooling people is it's coming out of the mouth of people who call themselves evangelicals. And evangelical used to mean not liberal. Now, what's evangelical? Where does that word come from? Well, it comes from a Greek word. uh, The word is euangelion. And the word euangelion, where we get our word evangelical, is the word for the gospel. Right? Now, getting people's persons (laughs) into heaven... The whole person goes to heaven. Um, is that a, 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 this has been the job of the evangelical church for a hundred years because we knew about heaven and hell and, a, and a, an atonement. Now, when you when this what's going on, and, and in the email to be fair, the guy says, "Well, I want you to know I do I do believe those things." In an early sentence, yeah, I believe those things, but then it doesn't matter. Said I started there, but now I'm doing something more. Yeah, he's he's progressed now to this better thing than the gospel. Yeah, so yeah, so it was very interesting because it was the first actual interaction from somebody on the other side who read the book, and I think what we see is that heaven and hell it rests too lightly upon our hearts and minds. That the terms of the gospel and the blood atonement are seen as a trivial thing. And when that happens, we are falling into the very apostasy that was being warned about in the book of Hebrews. Because if we really believe our God's consuming fire, then His blood cleansing our conscience so we could come and serve God would be something on our lips and in our sermons and in our books. And another thing, when another one of the emails was, well, they didn't like all this turn or burn. That's what they call my message, turn or burn which means repent and believe the gospel, otherwise God's going to judge you. That's also mocked. Well, why are evangelicals mocking what used to be their own message? Um, it almost sounds, that passage you were, that your friend was emailing with, it almost sounds like they're inching towards like Kingdom Now theology. Oh, yeah. Making Kingdom Now. Yeah, yeah. sure. It's, it's basically the idea that God's going to come in judgment is not worthy to be preached to anybody. All right? But the idea that we can solve the world's problems now if we just work together, that's our new message. And I, I see people tell me I'm an alarmist, but frankly, I, I know what liberalism looks like. I used to be in a liberal church, and it looks just like this. And I don't know how, if you, I don't care if you call it evangelical and, and cross your fingers and say, yeah, I believe in the blood atonement. 
But if you really believe in it, and if you really believe it's true that everyone who's not saved is facing God's wrath, there's what message could be more important than to tell them how to escape from God's wrath? And so why would they mock that? Yes. Well, you know, today we have trouble uh, acknowledging the written word like the law. You know, we have a, an immigration problem in the Southwest. We have laws in place. They've been ignored for years and want to pass more laws. So what? So we can ignore more laws? And uh, we, we've come to this thinking where everything's negotiable. And everything needs to be positive. You know, if we're not positive and happy and entertained, we don't even want to hear about it. <laughs> but when we go down that path, we end up paying a bigger price. In, you know, just, just in, the, in the simple lessons of life. So when we lose this idea, it's hard for us to think of a God that will hold us accountable. We look at that God as somebody that's supposed to entertain us, to make things good for us, to make us happy. And we lose the, the idea that he is holy yeah. and that he will judge and that what he says means something. Because words don't mean anything anymore. Words are negotiable. You know, I don't care. I, I was in college and, and uh, the grades would come out. And the people that didn't like their grade would go in and argue with the professor and argue until they got a better grade. What, their, their work wasn't any better, but <laughs> it had nothing to do with the work. It was, you know, this cheap word of, of a grade. And, and so when words lose connection to actions, to, to reality, then you get into all this delusion. Yeah. That's what, you know, uh, if you haven't seen Dean Gotcher's material, I'd recommend it because he explains that very well, what, what Mike was just saying. Well, clearly the, the full gospel is trivialized because guys like Warren and Heibels and Schuler trivialize it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to give the full gospel to include sin and damnation because that would empty out places like Saddleback and the Cathedral. <laughs> And then the other problem is the reason it turns people away is because they don't want to do it. They don't want to be surrendered. They don't want to be obedient. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. So what we have here is, I literally, I was thinking about when I was reading the emails from that pastor. So I wonder if they even know what the book of Hebrews is about. Because you couldn't study the book of Hebrews and come to that kind of a conclusion. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by gratitude for what? For the blood atonement that He's provided, that makes it possible to our conscience to be cleansed from dead works, that we might serve, latruin, meaning in the Greek, as a priest, that we can actually come into the presence of God and not fear being damned. Isn't that a great thing? Isn't that a fabulous thing? And how can that bear so lightly? You know, I think that David Wells is very prophetic in a way about, because he wrote in the 90s when things weren't as bad as they are now and warned us about all this. But David Wells wrote two books, uh, No Place for Truth and God in the Wasteland. And that second one in particular deals with what we're talking about right here. And what, what Wells was saying is that the holiness of God, the word holy, isn't that kabod in the Old Testament? I'm trying to remember. It means heavy. 
What was Ichabod? The glory. No, it's glory. Yeah. The glory's departed. Hesed. Hesed. Hesed is loving kindness. Yeah, but the idea of holiness is that God weighs heavy upon us. And, and, and so Wells take, took that in his book, God in the Wasteland, and said, what's wrong with our church at the end of the 20th century? This was in the mid-90s. Was that the holiness of God nowhere, no longer weighs upon us in any meaningful manner. And we've become basically secular. Even, even the church has become secular and has no sense of this holiness of God. But what would remedy that would be clear teaching of the Bible. If every Christian had to sometime during their life study the book of Hebrews and understand what it means, that would remedy the problem. Yeah, for three years, yeah. You should know pretty good, Brian. You've been here that whole time, haven't you? Just missed the first... Where were we when you came? Right at the beginning. Okay, so, you, so you've been here that whole time. So, But what happens, Hebrews just brings you face to face with the holiness of God. And the great salvation. And it says in, in earlier on, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And so when pastors from some of the biggest churches in America are saying uh, that this message of turn or burn is just a a silly thing that's getting us off track because we're stuck in our rational propositional minds, and what we should be doing is joining the peace plan and trying to solve the world's problems, I think that... Yeah, so we we no longer have, we call ourselves evangelical, but the euangelion means so little to us that we don't bother to pro- pro- proclaim the terms of it. And I think that this has become a crisis, and, and people like MacArthur are not just crying wolf. I mean, this is real. This is real, and it's deadly, and I I don't know future history other than what the Bible reveals to us. We do know that... Um, one of these times, history is going to run out, and we're going to be in the middle of the, you know, the tribulations coming, and people aren't prepared for whatever is going to happen, whenever the rapture might be. It sounds to me like different world religions are would probably want to make the world a better place to live, and they actually might be able to do that if they all got together. But it sounds like the second Tower of Babel. Well, exactly, it is the second Tower of Babel. It's not an accident that when you read Revelation that it talks about Babylon. Alright? And we believe it's a reference to Rome, but what Babylon is, is the dreams and aspirations of a rebellious world. The first Babel was we're going to have one world, we're going to be able to do whatever we want, and we're going to have prosperity, we're going to have our own religion, we're going to have everything we want by making Babel. Babylon is the world wants to redo that. Now, God hasn't allowed that. See, He just hasn't allowed it. But one of these days, He's going to restrain her. It's going to be removed. Remember that? Thessalonians, He who restrains. Restrainers are removed. And when the removal happens, the world will rush in because now we've got what we've been dreaming about since Genesis. And they're going to have their one world religion, one world economic system, one world communication system, and it's going to be glorious but then, as I'm going to preach this morning, when they say peace and safety, then cometh sudden destruction. Like a thief in the night. And the day of the Lord comes suddenly. 
Yeah, and so we better be prepared. Yes. The concept: How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That doesn't. That's also very similar to the First John passage where it says, "Doesn't say denying, just neglecting will is enough." And what we're that one those, those email passages, while the guy was claiming to believe the true gospel, he was also claiming to neglect it because he's going to push someplace else. Mm-hmm. So the, the neglecting itself is equated as a denial. Right. It is. Neglect is a denial, and failure to confess is a denial. And it's fatal because it falls under the problem that's warned about, or discussed, I should say, in Romans 10. How will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? And how will they preach unless they're sent? And so if there's no preacher sent to the lost to proclaim the terms of the gospel... How will they hear? How will they be saved? And I believe these passages, just as much as the ones on God's sovereignty, uh, every passage is true. So, um, I don't know who's going to be sent. I believe, here's what I believe. God will raise up somebody and he'll send them. And they will proclaim the gospel. But woe to us if we refuse to be the one that he wants to send. Yeah. Your worry is the same as the Apostle Paul. When he was leaving, he was worried. He says, I'm worried the wolf will come in and disperse the flock. And that's what we got today. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And as far as people going to heaven, Maine, praise God, Maine, millions go to heaven, Maine, then to hell hole, Jesus said. And that's what you're concerned about. And that's what we should be concerned about. And these wolves, they're so bad. I witnessed to a preacher, he says, and I told him the gospel, he says, you're getting that out of the Bible, he said. That's how bad they are. <laughs> What's wrong with you getting that out of the Bible? <laughs> Where do you think I'm getting it from? That's how bad they are today. Yeah. Because you want everybody to be good, and everything's good, so forget the Word of God. It's that bad. Yeah. You know what? Um, well, I'm going to preach on that, too. The fact, you know what the message of, the, of all false prophets boils down to? Keith will say, what is it? Peace, peace, when there is no peace is the message of every false prophet. Every false prophet gives false assurance. I'm going to preach on that. Okay, we're going to get our verse. If we don't even get this one done, that's going to be very bad. <laughs> our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> okay, uh, Denise, Exodus 24:17, and uh, Linda, how are your eyes doing? Uh, if you don't block my lens. If I give you some light, all right. Numbers 11:1, Keith. Numbers 16:35, Karen, Deuteronomy 4:24. You don't have yours. Okay, Diane, Psalm 50 and verse 3, Noel, Psalm 97 and verse 3, and Pat, Isaiah 66, 15. All right, back over here, Exodus 24, 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Okay, the, the Lord's glory was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. And that's probably... The background, because Sinai was discussed in Hebrews 12, that's probably what he's thinking of here in Hebrews 12:29. is that passage that Denise read from Exodus 24:17. So there was a consuming fire. And then I'll stand back, so you got light. Numbers 11 and verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was... Aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and 
consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Yeah, they were complaining about the fact that God took them out of Egypt and gave them manna. And so when they're in the middle of their grumbling, the fire of God came down and starts burning people up. That's what that was about. Now, if you preach to these people, God's consuming fire, do you think they'd kind of get that idea? It's very, very literal. Yes. They complained because of the manna God gave them for life in the, in the wilderness, and now we're complaining of the manna of Christ. Yeah, and His Word. The bread of life. Very, very good, very good, uh, Denise. You know, um, yesterday, Brian Flynn and I were doing some radio recording again. We're working our way through my book and doing radio shows. And we were talking about John 6 and how there's an analogy in John 6 to the thing in Numbers. Because what happens is Jesus multiplies the bread and then they perceive that he's the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. And then they want to make him king by force. Why? Well, because if you have a king that can make bread, then you don't have to plant wheat, right? So you can just have free food. And so they're going to make him king. Well, he won't do that. So he goes, he walks across the water, actually. And they follow around, they come around the lake and they find him again. And Jesus says to these people, you're not following me because you saw signs. You're following me because you want bread. Now see, a sign is supposed to signify that he's the Messiah. But they forget about the implications of Deuteronomy 18 because they admitted he was the prophet that God sent into the world. But what does it say in Deuteronomy 18 about the prophet he sent into the world? Listen to him. What did God say when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration? Listen to him. And so now so Jesus starts telling them what they need to listen to. Okay, he's the prophet, so he's going to prophesy to them. And he says to them, all you want is bread. You don't want to, you're not paying attention to the sign the way you should have. Well, they said, manna, Moses gave us manna. What are you going to give us? Alright, so now, if, so if Jesus is this new Moses, Deuteronomy 18, and he's the prophet that Moses predicted, then he's going to be like Moses and he, he should give us something at least as good as manna, right? And so they were interested, but still interested in the bread that he made. And so he said, okay, what I'm going to give you is my flesh for the life of the world and my blood as drink. That's what you're going to get. Well, they didn't like that, right? And so there's a dispute. It goes on for 60-some verses. That's a long chapter. It goes like to 60-whatever, 66, 67 verses, John 6. And he keeps going back to it. He said, uh, the work of God is to believe in the one that God sent. So you're, Jesus said, he's a, Jesus himself was an object of faith. He was going to provide atonement through his blood. He was going to raise people up on the last day if they came to him. And they didn't like it because they wanted bread. And so was, when you're talking about that verse, about the grumblers, about the manna, this is what's going on in John 6. They're grumbling about the manna. And, and they will be judged because they wouldn't come to God on his terms through Messiah. Now, it gets... Narrowed down, so they had this multitude, and when he gets all done, well, then Peter said, well, you know, don't you, you're offending these people. <laughs> you know, we're not gonna have, you keep preaching like this, we're not gonna have too many followers here. <laughs> and so, what was Jesus' answer to Peter? Are you going to leave too? Now it's just down to the eleven. Are you gonna leave too? And Peter said, where will we go? 
Only you have the words of life. And so, um, it's a very good analogy. And if you want to make an analogy to the church, what's going on because of this desire to be attractive to the world, we're not giving the people the words of life because the world has no appetite for the words of life. And uh, and so the, the people grumble about the manna. And that's a very bad thing, for our God is a consuming fire. Yes? Um, the church that we formerly went to uh, is a secret church, and one of the pastors uh, preached about um, people dying, and probably a lot of your parents are in hell uh, because you didn't tell them about the gospel. They got more complaints uh, than ever, and they said that they'd never preach about that again. Because they got complaints. Yeah, they offended people. Okay. Well, see, that that's one of the things we were talking about in our radio. Brian Brian Flynn made a very good point in one of our earlier broadcasts. He was saying the problem with the whole seeker thing is that you adjust your message so the seekers won't be offended by it. The idea is that eventually, at some point, you're going to tell them, right? But what Brian Flynn was saying is that logically that point never comes. And the reason it doesn't come is that there's more seekers every week. And and so the new ones, you can't tell them right away because you, you're going to do this later somewhere else. And then there's new ones, and then there's new ones. So there's never some point where you just come out and say it. Other than, I guess they did one time. And then, and then that's a very bad thing because now the whole works is offended the first time you actually come out and say it. Yes, sir. Um, I was actually just reading John 6 yesterday, and what struck me about that passage was right before Jesus uh, asked Peter what he's going to do, it says in there that all of you know, basically, basically everyone who was following Jesus left yeah. when Jesus gave that message. And I think that's what the new, the new and emerging church is afraid of, is that if we actually tell the truth, people will leave. And they will. <laughs> right, and they would leave just like they did in John 6 if the true words of life were given, other than the ones who recognize them as words of life. The Peters will stay, which is who? The people who are truly converted. Because the people will grow when they hear the words of life. Now, another danger... And the reason why any given church, whether it's a little church or a big church or whatever it is, we have to have a consistent message from the Bible. Why? Because if you ever build up a bigger church without that, you're going to put yourself into temptation. And the temptation is this. You build an infrastructure to take care of however many people are coming. And once you have a big infrastructure and a big mortgage and a big pastoral staff based on whatever it was you were doing, and in any sense it's not the gospel, if you change, you're going to put yourself where you can't pay your bills. And you can't support your infrastructure. And so, that being the case, we need to be very careful what, what foundation we build on. And it's better to be, it would better to be little and stay little with a true message than be big with a bad message. Now, it doesn't mean God can't make a church get bigger with a good message, because He does and can. He did, for example, with Grace Church uh, out in California. MacArthur has kept the same consistent message since 1968, and God sent added to the church those that are being saved, and so it gets bigger. 
The last time I heard him, he said they were baptizing like 75 people a month, and a lot of them young people. So God can build a big church. But see, MacArthur keeps telling them the same things every week, that they're going to go to hell if they don't repent. So he would have offended them. They were going to be offended. They've been offended a long time ago. Okay, and It reminds me of what Ben Franklin said about the preaching of Whitfield. Whitfield was a, a, a great a revival preacher in the first Great Awakening. And, uh, Franklin was a pagan. Yeah, Franklin was a pagan, but he loved, he, he just admired Whitfield. There was a lot of things about Whitfield that Franklin liked, even though he didn't believe his message. In fact, I was, you read Franklin, didn't you? It's interesting. He said he'd leave his money at home when he went to Whitfield meeting because he'd raise, he'd be asking money for orphans or something and Franklin would give it all away. (laughs) So he didn't want to get rid of his money, so he'd leave it home for him. He went to hear Whitfield. But one of the most famous quotes of Franklin on Whitfield was this. He says, he says, and the, and the multitudes keep flocking to hear him, even though he abuses them so bad, uh, preaching to them that they're so sinful, they're like half devils. <laughs> so Franklin says they, they keep going back, even though he tells them they're lost sinners. Well, um, so you can build a true work with a true message. Because there are those who will hunger for the words of life. But if you ever build a a church on something else, it's very costly to go back. Do you see what I mean? And so we really need the fear of God to not not do that because it's just too costly. In the church I went to formerly, they had kind of a description of different pastors. And you can have a hireling who takes care of the the needs of the church and does what the church wants to do as long as he does his job. Or you can have a shepherd who cares for the souls of the, of the congregation. And I think we as a church are very fortunate to have a leadership that are shepherds. Well, by God's grace, I hope that's true. Um, I just wrote an article and I was talking about that a little bit. When Paul, Remember when Paul said, warned the flock in Ephesus that when he departed, wolves would come in, not sparing the flock? Um, so... The, the needs of the flock have to be number one. Uh, okay, let's, let's, Keith, you had a verse, uh, number 1635? Can I read, read a little more because it kind of puts it in context? Moses said, By this you shall know the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, and this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, and if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up, and all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol. Then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men that belonged to Korah with their possessions, so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Wow. And what was that all about? They didn't think Moses should be the one who mediated the Old Covenant. They thought they could do however they saw fit. I, I referenced that at the Faith at Risk seminar we did over at St. Paul because I was wanting to warn people that you just can't come to God any way you want. You have to go through the mediator. And the people that don't like the mediator, that's Christ in the New Covenant, 
are going to have the same kind of fate. Okay, and you had um, Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Okay, there it says it again. The Lord your God is a consuming fire. And then uh, Psalm 50 and verse 3. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. <laughs> fire devours before God and is very tempestuous around him. Uh, in Psalm 97 and verse 3. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. Okay, fire burns up the adversaries. How can you uh, not be an adversary of God? Repent and believe the gospel. Be in Christ. You've got to be in Christ. Then the fire won't burn you. And then the last one was Isaiah 66.15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. Okay, so there's God coming in, in, in fire with his a- anger his, uh, against his adversaries. What was that? Number 1635. In fact, that whole book, number 16 is about Korah's rebellion. And they decided that they could offer offerings however they saw fit. It's mentioned in Jude again, because we're going to have the same concept happening now. They've gone by. In the way of Korah. Yeah, Korah is mentioned in the book of Jude in a warning about false prophets at the end of the age. They can the same and, that's what, and that's what we're trying to warn, that this uh, contemplative prayer and... Um, uh, this lady that says they, we can have our own tent of meeting and go get our own revelations. It's, what that means is that we can mediate our own covenant. Now she probably would deny that, but then she better not teach these things if she would want to deny that. So, um, what did I want to do here? I don't know. I, I have something here that says wow, so that means it was real good. <laughs> Now, William Lane has it after all, this chapter 12. William Lane, whose commentary is just amazing, outstanding commentary, has some explanation of the whole chapter. And so let me read just a few bits of this as we close out Romans 12. It is the threat of apostasy to which members of the house church were exposed through careless disregard for the blessings of the new covenant. Spiritual and emotional fatigue combined to create a climate of apathy and insensitivity to the voice of God heard through the preaching of Scripture. All right, so this warning is against apathy and insensitivity and fatigue in which, as we were talking earlier, the great truths of the covenant rest too lightly upon us. And we do, do not take with due seriousness God, His glory, His gospel, His atonement. But that this book was given, the book of Hebrews, that these things would be brought to the people that heard them when it was originally written so that they wouldn't become apostate. And so they drew upon the Old Testament that these people shared as their belief, as Hebrews, to show that God's still consistently the same. And that it was obvious to them that in the Old Covenant, whenever there were rebellions, God judged. They would all agree with that. And that God is a consuming fire. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that to trample underfoot the terms of the New Covenant is more serious 
than what they did in the Old Testament. Amen. So therefore, it was even more uh, uh, weighty to take with all due seriousness the voice of him who's warning from heaven, that is Christ, through his words, through Scripture. Now, I was just going to give you a few more quotes here from William Lane. The new covenant encounter with God signifies access to God in the presence of those who gather for festive acclamation of his worthship. Worship is declaring his worthship. Christians come to God, the judge, who is the God of all, the one from whom Israel felt estranged as Sinai and fled. They meet him in their joyful assembly together with angels, the faithful men and women of God under both covenants, and Jesus himself. It is the writer's firm conviction that the high priestly work of Jesus in his death and heavenly exaltation has secured for Christians in the, in the present time a living relationship with God which fulfills the promises of the new covenant. Expressed in terms of the vision in verses 22 to 24, this is Hebrews 12, the Christian's experience with God now is the pledge of his ultimate transfer to the actual presence of God in the heavenly city. Now, what he's reminding us of is that we've come to the company, the angels, the, the, the general assembly of the firstborn in heaven, and that when we gather here on earth under the terms of the covenant, and when we gather in fellowship with God's blood-bought sons and daughters, and when we bring our worship and our praise to God, and when we hear the words and we believe the words, that we are, in a sense, gathering with that group only just here. We don't see them. And we're anticipating the day when we'll be actually with the general assembly of the firstborn in heaven and the angels and the souls of just men made perfect and so on. So that's what he's saying there. However, he says, I'm going to just quote what I thought some of the better parts here. However, life under the new covenant is conditioned not only by promise in the sense of future blessings, but by promise in the sense of future scrutiny. That aspect of the present and future is explored in terms of the promises in Haggai 2.6 from the Septuagint that a divine shaking will profoundly affect the new covenant community. Those who carelessly ignore the revelation of the eschatological salvation of God through his Son and who show contempt for the blessings of the new covenant cannot possibly escape detection. A discriminating judgment will remove from the community those who through apostasy have denied their character as men and women consecrated to the service of God. Uh, in the final paragraph of this section, the developed contrast between the old and new covenants which is elaborated in the distinction between warning on earth and warning from heaven, is transformed into the opposition of shakable and unshakable, the removed and that which remains. The subtle change is significant. It serves to shift the emphasis in the section from the essential difference between the Old and New Covenants to the crucial distinction between those who are faithful and those who are not within the community. One last paragraph. Christians under the New Covenant are to enter into an experience of maturity in which all of life becomes an expression of worship. Authentic worship is a grateful response to covenantal blessings already experienced and to the certainty of the reception of the unshakable kingdom. It is deepened by the frank awareness of the awesome character of God's holiness, which was disclosed in the epiphany of Sinai. A failure to listen attentively to what God is saying to the community now, at this present time, can only be catastrophic. That was William Lane's explanation of Hebrews 
chapter 12. Now today, um, we are living in an age in which this catastrophic happening is coming upon the church in massive, massive numbers. And the blame can be seen far and wide. You could blame the seminaries for shifting over to the therapeutic model or bringing in the seeker thing to try to help people be successful. You could blame them. You could blame pastors for a lust for numbers that would water down the message. Or you can blame the hearers who won't endure sound doctrine because it says in 2 Timothy 4 that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears teachers tickle heap unto themselves teachers. So you can blame the people in the congregation who are saying to the pastor, don't preach sound words to us. The blame can go anywhere because we're all responsible. But what is the solution? And the only possible solution is that the, that the he who's speaking from heaven, not in New Revelations, but uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God who has spoken to, uh, to the fathers in many portions in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Those words of the Son that we've been given in the Bible need to be not only proclaimed, but they need to weigh heavily upon us. And, and every one of us from the pastor uh, to the teachers and leaders in the evangelical movement to the people that are leading Bible studies and to the ones who are new Christians that are just learning, whoever we may be and whatever our role, in summary of what this is saying, may the words of God weigh heavily upon us so that we take with due seriousness everything the Lord has said so that our worship would be informed worship by the objective words of God and that we might come to Him on His terms and that we might be so full of joy and thankfulness for this great salvation that we wouldn't think about neglecting it. And that... Um, it's a great summary for Hebrews 12. The, what's left in Hebrews is some further, some exhortation. Much of the Bible is later, especially the epistles are this way. They, the doctrinal section, although there's exhortation all the way through Hebrews, but often at the end there's some practical guidelines. And so Hebrews chapter 13 will give us some of those and we will commence our way through Hebrews 13. We did it. We got through 12. <laughs> we did. I finished it. And um, I'm thinking, you know, we can just choose whatever book we want to study next. I think 13 will go a little quicker, but I've been wrong on that before. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I'm thinking about this class going through 2 Corinthians when we're done with Hebrews. And the reason I'm thinking about 2 Corinthians is it's about Christian ministry. 2 Corinthians is where Paul shares his heart about his own ministry and what he believes Christian ministry should be. And I think that would be a good book of the Bible to equip us all for the work of the ministry. So I intend, when we finish Hebrews, to commence going verse by verse through Second Corinthians. So God bless you, and we'll see you upstairs in a half hour. <laughs>